The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. It is on? Oh, yeah, it is on. Great. I didn't see lights or whatever. All right, we're good. All right. Well, um, this is not pastoral hype or hyperbole. I am really honored to be here, and it's, uh, it's a real joy that in this season of life, I get to hang out with remarkable women and men like yourselves. And I mean that for a lot of reasons. Um, I am an exceedingly rich man for having had a spiritual father for 21 years named Jack Miller. And Jack lived out before me with me and a lot of other uh, gospel brigands the importance of having someone that would be in front of you and and would encourage you and would demonstrate their own... um, gospel astonishment and movement towards gospel sanity and a deeper, more joyful repentance. And so in the Lord's goodness, when I transitioned uh, out of being a senior pastor, first of all, I kissed the face of God because I live with 70% less stress now. But it segued into becoming uh, a member of one of our daughter church staff. So the guy that used to work for us in downtown Franklin as our singles pastor, Carter Crenshaw, I now work for him. So there's something, I think, good about getting lower as you get older. And so it's a real joy to be teacher in residence on the staff that basically is designed a position that would say, we want you, as long as you're sucking oxygen, to encourage younger leaders. So I thank God for that privilege. And it's an honor to be here with you. And I hope that the Lord does encourage us. Uh, I want to start by saying this, that Bob and I did not have three beers last night or two coffees this morning to talk about what we were going to talk about, but we might as well have slept in the same bed because it's pretty remarkable about what the Lord put on his heart and where uh, we're going to go now. In, In many ways, this hour will be about kind of the show and tell, my demonstrating through my story, more importantly through the scripture, the journey I've been on to be about the things Bob just shared with us. You know, what does it mean to become a individuated and differentiated leader? Individuated leader would be someone that you have a, a sense of self. You know who you are. You know uh, your dignity and your depravity, your beauty and your brokenness. To differentiate means that you can do that in the context of other relationships, other leaders, the people you're walking with, your marriage, your parenting, etc. And that's been a long journey for me. It's been a long gospel journey. Uh, I could explain uh, parts of it and be helpful to others before, as a 50-year-old man, I began to move more fully into that way of life myself. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite you to turn in the Bible, first of all, to a passage in the Gospel of Luke. Then I've got a little... You can go ahead and put that thing up on the screen, if you would, brother. I'm going to talk about... uh, some important aspects of learning that many pastors like yourselves through a lily-funded study came away saying, I so wish I had understood this. I so wish there had been a seminary somewhere in the universe that could have required these things in the curriculum. We're going to talk about some categories uh, as they connect to this passage. And then I'm going to uh, uh, hopefully be appropriately vulnerable with you about just kind of what this journey has meant for me to be someone that would learn uh, more about becoming healthy. And uh, that's the journey I'm in now. I hope that if we meet each other 10 years from now, I'll be able to say, here's where Jesus has been showing me more of my need, but even more of his resource. So let me take a moment to pray as we come to the word of God. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, glorious triune God that has made us for wonder, yet we are so prone to wander. Thank you for your pursuing heart today. Thank you that your welcome, your hospitality extend uh, in this place to us. Uh, Lord, who are we to speak for you, our God? Who are we to lead the lambs of Jesus? Who are we to tell your story and to proclaim your glory and your grace? Who is sufficient for these things indeed? To which, Lord, you respond, I have made you for myself. I have bought you for myself. I have forgiven you as forgiven as you'll ever be. I have robed you in the righteousness of my son. I sing over you. I delight in you. I will quiet you with my love. Father, give us that reality today. Help informed minds become inflamed hearts as we marinate in this scripture. Lord, help us to become a culture of healthier leaders. Help us as lead pastors, senior pastors, or whoever is highest on the org chart to be the ones uh, most living this life of knowing that grace runs downhill. Uh, Teach us, Lord, as Jack Miller taught me, those two glorious double cheer-ups. Cheer up, we're so much more broken and in need of the grace of God than we realize we are, but Hallelujah, cheer up. We're so much more welcome, known, loved, intact, wanted, desired, sealed than we can hope or imagine. Both are true because the gospel's true. Father, thank you for this time. Help your servants, your sons and daughters come alive to your word. Protect these, Lord, in the hearing of my words, both in this room and those that might listen later to a recording, Lord. Protect them from any of my foolishness or my obvious inability to do um, justice to the full implications of this text, and also, Lord, uh, protect from the things I'll say that really aren't consistent with the whole counsel of God. Uh, It's my joy to know that you are faithful to that end, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 5, we're going to pick up at verse 17, and we're going to look at a very familiar story And we're going to apply it to leadership culture. So let's just on the front end as I even read this text, let's think about this as a passage as it would apply to leaders, to all leaders, whether we are uh, paid staff, whether we are in some position of of responsibility leading the people of God. And uh, just so many unique things about this story that I think uh, are inviting to us and really will give us some practical hands-on connections with that marvelous word we heard from Bob this morning. Um, The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God for his word. One day as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him to the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, 
Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Um, what incredible story. One that we live in, this, is, you know, this should be a, in many ways a paradigm for how we think about uh, our corporate services of worship. It wouldn't it be great to think that we've got this kind of uh, doxological anticipation or as my brother Joel gave me a great phrase yesterday, what was it? Liturgical expectation. You know, to uh, don't just plan a service, but expect for the breaking in of the powers of the coming age. And uh, because here's Jesus in a home, he's surrounded by religious people. And one of the first things I see in this text, once again, as I want to think about this as, as a great leadership culture text, uh, first thing I noticed in this passage is that everybody's welcome. I mean, he's in, he's in, a, in a public gathering place. There are uh, Sadducees and Pharisees, and they were just as welcomed by Jesus as anybody else. But, but the image here is this, that they're just people that, have, that are hearing about this rabbi. They're hearing that uh, there's something unique about this man, Jesus. So a home is full, and, and everybody seems to be equally welcome. Now, that's true of this room today. No matter what your self-awareness is right now, no matter if you're the guy or the gal thinking, if they really knew the web search I was doing at three this morning, they would give me the left foot of fellowship out of this room so fast. Or if they knew I've done nothing but judge every person in this room's heart since I've been here because none of them get the gospel like I do. You know, whoever you are, whatever, wherever you are in that narcissism or that fear of man posture, we're, we're, we're all welcome, believers, non-believers alike. And, and I think that's just very important, especially when pastors get together because we all know our, well, we maybe don't know, but we all should become aware of our pastor pose. Something happens when you pull into the parking lot at a pastor's gathering. You kind of, okay, what's it going to be like? You know, okay, I put on my Acts 29 pastor pose. I know what to say. I know now we're all beginning to get a nice part on the side of our head, comb it back and get a good beard. It's just kind of a, and plaid is more popular now. You know, some of us comb it forward because we can't have the cool parts like you can have. But, uh, and, and my beard's such an embarrassment to some of the follicle impressiveness that a lot of you guys have. So uh, if you saw that picture thinking, where's his beard? Well, that was kind of photoshopped a little bit, a little bit darker than it actually is. But point being, we all have a pose, and uh, only in the gospel can that pose begin to be dropped. And that's going to be a big part of this story for us. Everybody's welcome, and, and, you know, and that should be true for us at this gathering. This should be increasingly one of the safest, most real places that you are involved with, as should be your church staff and your leadership culture. Secondly, we see that in this story, Jesus is the point. I mean, who's in the, who's in the center of the room? Right, just the most obvious figure in the whole story here is Jesus. They, they go to Jesus. They surround Jesus. There's people 
probably in every part of this uh, Judean home. You know, they're, they're in front of him, they're at his feet, they're out there in the, you know, he, wherever, they're around, they're even coming through the ceiling. But Jesus is the point, and, and we would all agree, that's what we want in our ministries, that's what we want in our hearts, right? We want Christ-centeredness. If gospel-drivenness means anything more or other than Jesus is in the middle of everything, we don't really understand the gospel. Grace, the word grace is not a subset. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think far more of Jesus as the personification of grace. Think of the gospel even as the gospel of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Use that one word, but have a bigger meaning. Jesus is central. Also, what we find in this unique setting is that uh, remarkably so as the story unfolds with these friends bringing their friend to Jesus, it really is a center-safe community. And we're going to see that in a, in a moment uh, because... Uh, Weakness is most comfortable in the presence of Jesus. It's why when Jesus even picked up words from the prophet, you know, uh, what did you expect to find? You know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to snuff out the smoldering wick. The bruised reed I'm not going to stamp on. There's just, uh, you know, you, we can be assured that the, the most welcoming place on the face of the universe or anywhere above earth, on earth, or below earth, the most welcoming presence is the presence of Jesus. And it's center safe. Now, let me tell you even briefly about that phrase where that kind of was birthed out of a letter I got uh, when we planted our church in downtown Franklin, Tennessee. And if you think you've been clueless a church planner, we were way more clueless than you were. We just happened to have a, a fun story of God decided to drop a gospel bomb on Franklin that we got in the way of because we sure did not know what we were doing. But as we were preaching... Um, the grace of the gospel and creating a worship culture that will enable us to linger in the presence of God, all kind of people started coming in from all kinds of backgrounds. And uh, one person in particular, um, a mother of one of our congregants that just had her first baby came, and I never met her, but she wrote me this letter. Uh, and she, here's the way this letter went. Um, Scotty, I never met you because quite honestly, I don't trust pastors and I despise Christians and church sucks. That's the way the letter started. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but she went on to say that my daughter had our first grandchild, so here was the deal. She said, Mom, if you're going to come be with us and we want you to, um, you know, our community is an important part of our life. So Sunday morning, I want you to come and just kind of sit and hold our baby, you know, where, where, so I can worship with my family. And also this woman described sitting on the back row in our church. And she said, I've, I've never seen anything like this before. She says, it was the first center safe church I've ever been in. I thought, what does that mean? Are people smoking reefer on the back row? You know, <laughs> the deacons don't hassle with them. Are they, you know, are they, it's just, you know, women can nurse babies and with no shame. Is it their uh, people are, uh, you know, what, what does center safe mean? Well, she didn't leave me in doubt. She went on to say, in her own words, as a non-believer would, she said, uh, I've never been in a church where, Y'all were talking more about people in the room than those outside the room. She said, uh, and it became obvious as you and others were there over those four weeks that the people up front seemed to need what you were talking about as much as anybody else. And she said, something else that intrigued me was, she said, I would watch coming in from downtown Franklin, people without shoes on, sitting next to people in incredibly expensive clothing, and I've never seen a gathering like that before, especially in a church. And that's why she used this phrase, it's sinner safe. People were, it was safe to be honest about who you are. It was safe to be uh, in that position 
where we could, we could drop more of the pose. And, uh, and um, so, you know, I wish I had kept that letter. I certainly have. It's written on my heart because it, it reminds me not just of what our churches should look like, but who we as leaders should be. What we should want for ourselves as, uh, as those that think even in the categories of healthy leadership or gospel-centered leadership, etc. And here's where I begin to transition into that obvious centerpiece of this story that's so intriguing. So is, here's this gathering, and then you've got, I don't know, let's just assume there's four people, because if there's a, a, a pallet or a mat that's being carried, you can kind of get the image of four corners, right? But you've got some friends bringing a paralyzed friend to Jesus. Now, let's just even, let's just think about what it would mean for us for that to be a metaphor for our staff. What is the staff of, of Acts 29 Church 30 miles north of Denver to look like? Well, how, how do we define ourselves? Again, the language that Bob used, identity and virtue. What if our identity as a church staff was wherever we are? Okay, Franklin, Tennessee, where we are a group of leaders that have the image that the best thing we can do as leaders is to learn how to carry each other to Jesus. That, that's what marks us. Here, here's, here's the rhythm. Here's the pace of grace in our leadership culture. Here's what the DNA of the gospel looks like among our eldership, our diaconate, our staff, whatever we're doing, however we're thinking about our leadership culture. New paradigms need something better. We're not a denomination in the Acts 29, but we are a fellowship, and we're thinking more deliberately about good polity, etc. Well, here's the core of what it's going to look like. Whatever we're going to call it, Presbyterian form of government, board leadership, elder leadership, uh, pastoral tribe, it's going to be marked by this. We are a people that carry each other to Jesus. And the senior pastor is the first person on the mat. I mean, just imagine that. What would it be if in your church family, and, and maybe for those of you that are directors of regions or lead pastors, if, 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 if lead pastor meant John 13 when Jesus disrobes himself, and does the paradoxical thing of washing the feet of those he's called to be apostles and astonishes them with that humility and, and really says to them, you know, uh, I've loved you in the world. I'll now show you the full extent of my love. And, and it's not just a blessing to be here, but th this is the way I want apostleship to do be fine moving forward. The apostles of the Lamb of God, God the Son, the creator of the world, will be one known far more as foot washing than scepter grabbing. And, and yet look in this very important story about how there's two aspects of what Jesus does, and we're using the image or the clear category of leaders. Here's two things that coming to Jesus should always be meaning for leaders in leadership culture. We see in this intriguing story of a paralyzed man lowered through the roof, and Jesus sees the faith of those who bring him. He doesn't see the faith of the one that's on the mat. There's something about that vibrant community where rather than criticizing each other, we're, 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 we're pulling for each other. We're, we're learning to uh, build a culture of prayer and, uh, and encouragement. In fact, we need to remember that the only command of the New Testament that's that's attached to the word or the category of do this exponentially is encouragement. Encourage one another and all the more as you see the day, capital D, day of Christ approaching. 
Here, four friends believing for their paralyzed friend, and Jesus taking on both the repentable parts of his story and the repairable parts of his story. Jesus does the unexpected always. He looks at this man, and rather than immediately saying, I'm going to take on that broken part of your story called paralysis, he says, no, your sins are forgiven. Because we know this because we read the Scripture, and we know from Genesis through Revelation of God's radical commitment to redeem rebels, fools, and idolaters just like me. And so we know that forgiveness is central, this, this core reality of what I need more than to be able to start, uh, you know, uh, line dancing in the middle of that room as uh, my paralysis goes away. What I need more than that is to be on the dance floor of the Father's love vis-a-vis Luke 15 and really know the Father's delight whether I ever get out of this wheelchair or not. The core need in our hearts always is for the grace that meets us as image bearers of God who've been living as rebels, fools, and idolaters. And Jesus forgives us. And Jesus meets us right there. So every one of us in this room is leaders. And let me say, this is not going to go away when you're an older leader. At least hear me say this today. I I truly wish I had begun a lot more becoming a healthier leader. I wish I had been the guy that got on the mat sooner in our leadership culture than I did. But I am so dang thankful that you don't outgrow your need for Jesus. And if whether you're 50, 60, 70, or 80, like Abraham and Moses, you're, you're never beyond the reach or the need of God's grace. And I've done my most important growth in the things Bob was talking about and we're talking about after my 50th birthday. Thank God most of you are, you know, half that age or 60% of that age. So you have no excuses. You have a great invitation. So the repentable and the repairable parts of your story. Who, who knows the repentable parts of your story? Who knows where idols of the heart is very much a theme for you, and yet you're able to kind of, in a sophisticated way, to kind of disassociate. But, but who, 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 knows, who knows your journey towards collapsing upon Christ and fresh repentance? You know, are, you, are we walking, are we creating an environment in our leadership culture uh, among staff, among pastors, among lay leadership, where, uh, where we are never shocked when we were repenting together. That's one of the most remarkable things I watched about Jack Miller. Jack became my, um, at Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia, he, he was given to me as my um, faculty advisor when I started seminary in January of 75. And I was bummed out because I never heard that name before. I knew other names at Westminster, Cornelius Van Til. What an awesome sounding name. Richard Gaffin, you know, Ray Dillard. There were so many bubblegum card theologians that I was really wanting my little three-by-five to say, you got one of them, but I got a C. John Miller. What is that? And uh, you know, knock on his door in Machen Hall, and uh, some of you heard me describe this event, and I'll never forget it. I reach out my hand, a little, a little you know, disappointed, don't know who he is, and I reach out my hand to uh, say, hello, I'm Scotty Smith. I'm one of your guys. And he undercut my hand and went under both arms, pulled me into his chest, and did not let go for 21 years. He was three years into his own gospel renewal, a man who had been repenting as a church planter and seminary professor of what he described as a cold heart, uh, uh, self-righteousness that was insufferable. So I got him three years into his foaming at the mouth with grace. 
And what a joy to watch him. The older he got, the quicker and the more joyful in his repentances. Never knew a greater picture of humble boldness and bold humility. So I knew what it looked like before I was willing to go there, before I was willing to get on the mat. But you see, this is what's going on. We are, we are to be those that carry each other. We're to be those as the leaders to say, heck no, me first. You, know, you guys take me to Jesus. And, and, and that would be remarkable leadership. We believe for each other. We each take our turn on the mat, but especially we leaders first. Well, let me tell you a little bit of my story about what that looked like and give you a few categories and uh, hopefully to encourage you that um, now is the time to begin to live this way together. Now is the time to go deeper into a culture really defined by gospel astonishment and gospel sanity and uh, and a repenting and believing culture and learning how to conflict redemptively, uh, learning how uh, the gospel uniquely, once again, as Bob framed it, can take us there. So, um, well, you know what? Let me do this first. Before I get into um, part of my story, let me call your attention, first of all, to this uh, first slide. And then I've got a handout for you, some questions to take with you that hopefully will be a... uh, you know, the gospel is going to always mess with you before it mercies you. So I'm going to give you some questions to be messed with. But we'll talk about that in a minute. But first of all, uh, in, in, in my life, uh, as I'll come to a story in a moment, uh, this is a remarkable book. First of all, how many of you have read the book Resilient Ministry? Is that known in uh, Acts 29 culture? A few of you. Okay, let me tell you about what the book Resilient Ministry is. The Lilly Foundation funded three professors at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis to, to research three cohorts of seminary graduates between five and ten years out of seminary. Uh, they were graduates of uh, Westminster Philly, Covenant Seminary St. Louis, and RTS Orlando. And they followed them for three years, and they did interviews. And, and a few of us, including myself, I was uh, honored to be a part of uh, kind of the older fart gang that would show up and help the young bucks. But part of the research was, what do you so wish you had gotten in seminary that now you know you need? And these things are so consistent with what Bob was talking about, uh, both last night and this morning. So here, look at these five. Uh, Here's what pastors like yourselves are saying. We, We wish we had gotten more of this. Number one, top of the list, spiritual formation and not just theological formation. Now, that, that convicts me because I remember even having had Jack Miller as a professor and a lot of remarkable people giving me incredible insight into sovereign grace and great Reformed theology, rescuing me from a very uh, theologically eclectic background. Still, the difference between an informed mind and an inflamed heart, it, 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 that was a journey for me. And, uh, and I got more theological formation. In fact, I remember the first first church staff I served on where I was ordained in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I was a youth pastor in a United Presbyterian Church with a senior pastor, graduate of Princeton, and three other associates were graduates of Yale, um, Union Seminary, and then there was one other. And I knew coming out of Westminster, I get the gospel and you don't. And literally, I would walk around as a youth pastor with a legal pad, sitting in the church, critiquing sermons because I understood grace so much better than they did. You see the ugly contradiction there? Spiritual formation, these pastors were saying, we wish we had had an environment that would really uh, 
invite us into heart engagement, even as we did the important work of learning about silent Shavas and Dagashlines and aorists and perfect tense and pluperfects and horatorative subjunctives. And yeah, I was just speaking in tongues. You're right. Uh, self-care. He's pastor saying five, ten years out, we wish we had known what becoming a healthy person was and that, once again, what Bob said this morning through Friedman, you know, having a sense of self is important, learning how to take care of yourself. I'm walking now with two or three hugely crisis-oriented, broken churches in many different denominations, and, uh, and all of them right now are suffering the blight of a senior pastor that was not able to handle success of that growing work and further became more narcissistic, pulling away, disengaging. But really, in every case, each one of these people, their narcissism is a thin veil for the fear and the shame that paralyzes their life. See, there's paralysis in your body, but there's also paralysis of heart. When my wife and I do our couples encouragement weekend, I usually start on Friday night by throwing this little question to Darlene. So, honey, and this wakes up everybody, especially the women helping their husbands listen with their own elbow. I'll say, so, Darlene, what was it like to live with a husband with a frozen heart for the first 25 years of our marriage? You know, it's kind of like, well, first of all, who would ask such a dangerous question? First of all, I would say someone that really believes, as Bob said earlier, we are the beloved of the Lord. And nothing defines us more than our hiddenness in Christ. That's not just our theology, our sweatshirt, our high five, our credo on our website. It defines us to the core of our being. We are in union with Christ. Um, I didn't know how to take care of me. Certainly for me, spiritual formation at that season of my life in seminary and, and early after, which is far more about being more right than you. Couldn't wait to graduate understanding Reformed theology better so I could fix all the charis, how I could fix all the toxic charismaniacs and all the silly Armenians running around. And, and hopefully you hear in that language the ugliness of my heart. Um, emotional and cultural intelligence. All these pastors said, we wish someone had talked to us about Emotional and cultural intelligence, which means, you know, and that was a part of what Friedman does so well. By the way, Friedman, I don't know, Bob, if you've read the prior book he read that's required reading at Covenant Seminary. Friedman did, wrote a book called Generation to Generation, and it's about family systems in synagogue and church. And he really shows how, you know, every church is made up, every church's system is as complex as family systems as you have in that community. And uh, so the whole study of emotional intelligence, of, of and emotional intelligence, the short version would be, uh, are, you, are you aware of how other people experience you, not the way you think they experience you or should experience you? Are you aware of your presence? Friedman's phrase he used in Generation to Generation, summarizing what Bob said, is an awesome phrase. Friedman said, the healthiest leaders in the universe are those that bring a non-anxious presence into the system in times of success, reversal, or chaos. Cultural intelligence, not just exegeting the text of Scripture because you love to hear yourself preach, but you're other-centered enough to care about the community where you're planning a church or the people that are in your, you know, region. You know, are, are you studying the hearts of those that live 10, 15-mile radius of where you're planning that church? Do you care about the community? Do you have any sense that that community 
uh, is a target for the presence of the kingdom, not just the people that live there. Marriage and family. Again, a lot of the leaders I've walked with are like me. Uh, sometimes it's out of the crisis of a wife that basically says, choose the church or me. I'm not going to prop up your idol structures anymore. And uh, being far more grounded in a, not just a theology of family, but saying, you know what? Nothing will be better for any man or pastor if he's married than to say, I loved one woman well my whole life. Leadership and management, once again, just things that should be far more core to seminary curriculum. But I will say this, kudos to Acts 29 as a movement that says we see these things and we want to do something about it. Now, great book, categories are important. Let me give you just a parallel in my heart and life, and then we'll have some Q&A here because I, too, want to be sensitive to our time. And I do have a, I will give you, uh, I'll ask to be handed out soon, just a card with uh, two sets of questions that might might be a way of, of moving into kind of the show and tell and helping us discover where we really are versus where we think we are. So what did, what did um, how did I train wreck in ministry? Uh, how did God lovingly bring me to self-awareness more like he brought Jonah to self-awareness? Don't you love the narrative of Jonah? I mean, God is pursuing his son, right? He's pursuing Jonah. And, and Jonah's the great example that in the gospel, we are characters in the story of God that we might be carriers of the story of God. In other words, the gospel is always coming to me that it might run through me. So when Martin Luther said, the gospel has legs, it's always running, but it never avoids your own heart. That was Luther's experience, right? He had to have a complete breakdown to understand there's only one righteousness, received righteousness. Well, in my case, uh, because I happened to be in a church plant that in God's sovereignty grew from, you know, a handful of couples to several thousand people, it made it far easier for me to keep up my pose, and basically, the image I'm most comfortable with talking about who I was relationally, who I was as a leader, is uh, a scene from one of my favorite movies. And I think if some of you were in uh, the larger gathering in Dallas that I spoke at this past November, I probably used this image, but it, it fits. And I never want to forget it because I never want to be this guy again. But uh, one of my favorite movies is the movie The Wizard of Oz. And uh, for a lot of different reasons, one being, however... That scene in the Emerald uh, Palace when Dorothy and her very broken friends are gathering, still earnest about getting what they so desperately need. And they're in the palace, and, and all of a sudden, you know, everything's green and, and there's thunder and all. But in the middle of the scene I'm thinking about, uh, Dorothy's little dog, Toto, goes in behind the curtains where we see off camera, or at least in the camera right, that Oz is behind these two curtains pushing a lot of buttons. So it's a very ordinary guy behind curtains doing his thing while there were a lot of very broken people on the outside appreciative of him. But here's what takes place, I don't think intentionally, but at least in common grace what's going on. Dorothy looks for Toto and she goes in behind the curtains and in essence it's like, oh, I'm so disappointed, Oz, you're, you're, you're not who we thought you were. It was more like Oz, come on out with the rest of us. We're, we're all messes. You know, you're, you're, a, you're a kind, balding man, and you don't need to push buttons. Just come out from behind the curtains, and, 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 and you know, we need courage. We need brains. We, we need stuff, and, and you need stuff, and let's just do this together. 
Well, I was a pastor for many years, basically Wizard of Oz, hiding behind the curtains. And my identity was basically this. I have nothing to give anybody relationally. There's nobody at home. There's nobody to know. But just give me a microphone and let me talk and leave me alone. And it's why in time God prophesied through my wife to me. I don't know what you think about contemporary prophecy, but I tell you, my wife prophesied as a wife. She said three things over the course of 12 years that God used, over the course of 15 years that God used to bring me finally out of the curtains, getting onto the mat. Uh, years into her own growth, when we moved from Winston-Salem to uh, Nashville, Darlene got displaced from her culture and in displacement, you tend to become more vulnerable and able to, to hear and to groan and to think. And she started working on her repairable and repentable parts of her story before I did, part of which was owning the fact that she was raped as a 10-year-old little girl. Her mother knew about it and did nothing about it. She was, her mom was more afraid her dad would murder the rapist than taking Darlene's rape seriously. So Darlene had a serious narrative of sexual abuse that we kind of put under a Romans 8, 28 Band-Aid for many years until God lovingly said, you've got a paralyzed heart. There's parts of your story that need to be honored. This doesn't define you, but it's a part of who you are and explains how in your system freedom is for you. So she starts getting healthy. And then, again, shorthand version, I know we're running out of time here. I do want to make time for Q&A. Uh, Darlene says to me uh, early in our story, or early in our life in Nashville, uh, Scotty, I don't think I really know who you are. Now, she's coming to self-awareness, so she's individuating and she's differentiating. And she basically said, I know God wants more for our marriage than what we have. We have great sex, but I don't feel really close to you. And she didn't exactly put it that way, by the way. That's the way a, a man would state it. Um, and, and then the second thing she said after we planted the church and all these people start streaming into Franklin, she said this one day. She said, and she didn't, you know, not rolling pin in hand, not finger in face, not, you know, patting foot or threat, bag packed or anything. She said, uh, Scotty, why do you suppose you're so much more alive in the pulpit than you are at home? And of course, my response was, it's just the anointing of God. What can I say? I'm just a... Yeah. Spirit comes on me, and man, isn't it awesome? All these people are getting saved and just kind of healed. And yeah, you know, that, no, I didn't say that. I had more wisdom than that. But you know what? What I, she knew, you know, I was more at home in the world of the the craft and what was going on, and confusing the growth of the church with that. I must be really okay. Now you see. However, let me let you guys know. Back to that narcissism or fear of man thing going on. I was far more fear of man. I, I never was an ambitious guy. I never wanted a big church, never thought in those terms, never thought of that, never thought of competing, comparing. I was a very insecure guy, so convinced. If you really, really knew me, you would despise me. But I did know I had a gift that God was pleased to use. Third thing she said about a year before my burnout, hitting the wall and then collapsing on the mat beginning a journey of good counseling, good care, better relationships than ever. She said to me um, about, you know, seven years from that point, she said, uh, Scotty, I want to get healthy with you, but I will get healthy without you. And it's her way of not, it, again, it wasn't screaming. There was a sadness. It was about, I believe the gospel you preach is calling forth, you know, a, a health in you, a healing in you. And thank God, in time, 
through hitting a giant wall and being swallowed not by a big fish, but being swallowed by a burnout that had me in an emotional, mental, physical, spiritual place of I got nothing left in the tank, I did finally collapse on the mat. And for the next several years, to beginning to, because I could not resist it any longer, I, I, I fell through the curtains onto the mat. And thank God the gospel that I had been preaching to others became increasingly true for me. And the repentable and the repairable parts of my story began to be exposed. And, uh, and I began to realize I'm not simply what I do with a microphone. I'm not, I'm not that stuff. And there, and, and there are people that want to know me, good friends that have been pursuing my heart that, that, that want to walk with me, not because there's any asset to be gained or advantage, but they just want freedom for my soul. And, uh, and I'm still in that process. Um, and I'm thankfully in that process. And I'm, I'm thankful to, you know, be vulnerable enough about that chapter and the ongoing season of becoming a healthier man with y'all because don't wait till you're 50. You know, um, um, what is your sense of self-awareness? Who knows you? And if you don't know, let me, can we pass those cards out now? Let's, and I, I don't know if, do we have enough for everybody? Hopefully there's one, okay? And, and would you just give me one? So this is, uh, you know, this is, you can probably say, I'll never invite you to my church. You're a dangerous man. But let me tell you some of the things that as the gospel began, as, as friends who had prayed for me, and I, some of you know this part of my story, when I first really broke, it was in the presence of two men that could take me to Jesus that my collapse happened. When I was with uh, two, of the found, two of the five founding members of our church, Michael Card and Scott Rowley, in Scott's office, when I finally could no longer run and when I finally began to hear the Father's pursuit and saw the hand of Jesus' willingness to expose my idle structures and not shame me, but heal me and free me, and to begin to reach in and to heal that part of my narrative that is a story of an 8-year-old kid sexually abused and an 11-year-old kid whose mom was ripped out of his life through a car wreck, whose father didn't mention his mom's name for the next 40 years. Deep wounds that needed healing. Mike Card and Scott Rowley, when they heard my story, wept on the back of my neck, probably the only second most holy baptism I've ever experienced next to the baptism of the Spirit. So what does moving forward look like? Here's some thoughts, and then again, we'll move into some Q&A. Um, encouraging gospel health and leaders. Here would, be a, here would be a beginning for some of us. Here, here would be a beginning. If you're married, here's some questions to ask your spouse. See, see Darlene pursued me. I never asked her these questions. This is a part of the way we do life now. Thank God we've been married 44 years, and uh, we're better friends than ever. And our bodies are wearing out, and we forget stuff. But you know what? We're going to weep more than ever when one of us commits the other to the earth. And that could not have been said for a lot of the years in our marriage. So here, here's, here's a couple of, of, of bodies of questions. You can ask your spouse if you're married, uh, and, and you'll see also your, your staff and, and other friends as well. But if you're married, here's some questions to ask your spouse. What is it like to live with me in this season of our marriage? Well, that might invite a disruptive moment. I mean, I'm not assuming. Let me say this. I'm not assuming Please, these questions are not assuming bad news. Please let, hear me say this. 
I'm not assuming we're, and I'm assuming we all desperately need Jesus more than we realize, but I'm not assuming we're, we're all equally unhealthy. But you see, this is just such a gift for you to ask these kinds of questions. Ask your spouse, what are you praying God will do in my heart and life? Now, there's even a proactive orientation because that as spouses, we want to not just critique each other, but are we learning to bring each other to the Lord, right? But, but listen well with pen in hand. Take notice. What seems to matter to me more than Jesus and our family? Boy, darling, could quickly answer that one. In what ways am I not... And in what ways am I, an unhel- am I unhealthy but don't see it or won't own it? Wow. I mean, who's got the gospel strength to go here? I think those of us that really do believe it's the Father's delight in us. It's his acceptance of us. It's his knowing. It's the fact that the Father's not just forgiven 4% of our sin but the other 96% as well is that we are completely declared righteous in the sight of God. Judgment day has already happened. We can ask these questions. We can want to know. Where am I unhealthy and don't see it or won't own it? What would a freer, healthier, easier to trust me look like? Great conversations in marriage. Let's take it into uh, the realm of our staff Uh, whether you're a lead pastor, ministry director, or leader. What is it like to work with me in this season of our ministry? How do I frustrate or discourage you as a leader? What seems to matter to me more than Jesus? How do my attitude, relational style, and leadership betray the gospel I cherish? What are you praying God will do in my heart and life? Now, I want you to see in all of these as we conclude, good news. Because you know what happens when leaders begin to live this way? Do you see how their text finished? Look, look at the end of this marvelous text. I love this. So, you know, there, there are people in the room, and think of this being the whole church now, the whole church observing leaders in your church context or your ministry and region. They're, they're watching friends being friends to Jesus, and, and there's, there is uh, exposure. I forgive your sins, and there's breaking into the Spirit. Rise up and walk. And... and And look at verse 25, and we'll conclude with this. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Now, look at this. Ah, let's let's long for this. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we've seen remarkable things today. Let me tell you, our congregations and our communities would rise up and praise God to see humble, gentle, healthy leaders doing life together. Let's pray under that hand. Let me pray, and then we'll do some Q&A. Father, I thank you for the courage of these women and men in this community and the various churches represented here, Lord, the churches that are thriving and the churches that are struggling. Everybody's welcome. Lord, I pray that you would be... um, Please to continue to let us see Jesus as central to everything. Jesus, would you give us the courage? Would you give us the the self-awareness to jump on the mat and to trust our friends to believe for us and to carry us to Jesus? Lord, free us from our deceit. Free us from the things, Lord, that just uh, truly 
cause us to live among other leaders, contradicting the very gospel that we do cherish. Father, you know my heart. I've always cherished anything I've understood about grace, anything I've understood about Jesus, I've cherished. But other things had more power, more charm over my heart. Thank you that you are faithfully changing that, that gospel identity is hopefully becoming more gospel virtue and that people that work with me can trust me and sense uh, Lord, a kindness that the gospel alone can create. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this people. Thank you, Lord, that there are friendships in this room that will be celebrated one day as brothers and sisters grab not just the mat but the corner of one another's caskets. And, Lord, we want to we wanna finish well together. We want to be healthier together. We, we, we want to be humble leaders glad leaders, childlike leaders, less childish leaders. Do it for the glory of your namesake in a world that one day will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of our God. And together we cry out, hallelujah, what a Savior, hallelujah, what a salvation in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you are, you are invited to ask me anything about any of this, literally, no no need to hold back. You know, I just kind of waded into a little bit of the image of Wizard of Oz coming out, beginning to get healthy. Anything that intrigues you, we want to know more about that. Any questions? And do we have at least 15 minutes? Where, where are we? Oh, timekeepers. We're good? Okay. So, okay, 15, 20 minutes. So any questions or observations about any of this? Jump in. Yes, sir. Right. Well, thank you. And, and, and that was critical. You know, part of my story is... Uh, I had a, a, an earthly father that worked so hard to provide for our family but never emotionally engaged. And so I grew up in a culture of complete emotional disengagement. My father, for uh, until the day he went to heaven uh, at age 92, after a season of Alzheimer's and forgetting my name and face, we would have this marvelous renewal before then. But he never called me once on uh, a birthday any time in my life. Now, I put that out there not to be pity. Don't, I'm not, I don't need a group hug right now. But I'm saying... Uh, I understand what it means to grow up disconnected, right? And so, uh, number one, I think a, a good theology of sonship needs to be increasingly something we come alive to. You, you'll remember J.I. Packer said, we, we understand the gospel to the extent that we make much of God as our Father. So there are aspects of spiritual formation that I think will be more familial. But I would also say this for Acts 29 as a movement. Granted, you guys started as a bunch of young bucks, and there were not a lot of old people around. The good news is this. You know what's going to be with this group right here 15, 20 years from now? You're not going to have as strong of a hairline as you have right now. You're going to be, you know, going to have gone through new seasons of marriage and rebellious kids. You're going to go through rapture and rupture, and you're going to get older, but get older together. But right now, do look to the voices that are available to you. There are older people. I know that... that um, Good friend of mine back in Nashville, uh, Ray Ortland, you know, he's one of the fathers in this culture. Keep looking at the mothers and fathers. Keep, keep looking among yourselves when you plan events. Who are, some of the, who are some of the older women and men that we can invite and we can just, just, just let them share their stories with us? Engage. You know, you, you know, listen, I know I was absolutely spoiled rotten to have Jack Miller as a dad for 21 years calling me three times to every one time I'd call him. I get it. But you know what? It's why, um, you know, the, a lot of the people that Jack impact are now saying, that's how I want to do the rest of my life. I want to be more accessible. 
So uh, don't assume if you don't have that kind of provision, God won't create more of it. So uh, it, it is something I was thinking. And, and y'all's movement in particular, look to some of the older leaders. They may not be a part of the Acts 29 tribe at all, but just uh, who, who is finishing well? Who's living, uh, showing a degree of the beauty and the humility and the gladness uh, of, of, of aging well in gospel beauty look like? Uh, but also... Uh, there, there are ways you can begin to offer this to one another. See, I think this is something about this picture of what if who you're working with right now, um, you are seeing more the image of. Let's, let's, let's even build our staff time together where we are consciously praying for each other. See, one of the things that Jack Miller did for us early on, he was the guy that told me I should plant a church. Just like he told Tim Keller, you should plant a church in New York. And Tim recently this past year said, humanly speaking, there probably would not have been a redeemer apart from Jack Miller that got in my face and said, plant a church in New York. Jack did the same for me and uh, in, uh, Franklin, but here's what he did. He wasn't going to be codependent on the church. He said, Scotty, as you start this church, if you're going to have elders meeting, think of this. If you think of typically elders meeting in the PCA, you got a, a Monday night for three hours, and the law of diminishing returns sets in. The longer you meet, the more stupid you become, and the worse business you do. He said, think about this from the get-go, and we did this. He said, have two meetings, an hour and a half each, earlier in the evening, have the first meeting of the month, whereas elders and pastors, you show up together just to read the Bible, pray together, and confess your sins together. And then the second meeting in the month, it's your business meeting. But what? You come to it not as little triangular triumvirates trying to, you know, win your position, but as sinners alive to the grace of Jesus, repenting together. So there's things we can do that don't require, you know, the resident hero or the, the old gospel geezer. They're just saying, let's, let's put some, let's do the pace of grace together. What are some things we can do in the way? And that translated in, in time and our staff of saying, you know, the way we'll do staff meeting is a whole staff. Hey, what about this? What if we actually think about spiritual formation for our staff? So in Christ Community Church in times, we started doing Wednesday morning staff arranged where first hour would be uh, praying through the Heidelberg Catechism together or a reading and studying, worshiping together. So are, are we putting rubrics of gospel culture in the way we actually are together. We want to live, work, and play. We want to worship, work, live, and play together as a staff. We want, we want a staff to a certain extent become a microcosm of what we love to see the Spirit do in the whole church. So we, we, it's not that we're all best friends. It's not that we move in the same, you know, neighborhood together. It's just that are we building a culture? You know, uh, I, I love what Bob said about how Friedman who was such an amazing rabbi, uh, how his argument for presence is more important than skill. The Harvard Review, some of you that read the Harvard Review, I don't, I'm not that smart, but my friends that do have said in the last five years, it's amazing the number of articles that have come out in the Harvard Review saying the culture of an organization is so much more important than the org chart and the strategy and the philosophy. Now, you start thinking about what that means. It means, okay, wow, you mean how we, the presence we offer each other, the culture, the environment, beginning with the highest leaders in the org chart, you know, the presence that's there. Is there a non-anxious presence? In Harvard, that's thinking about success or saying, this will help your bottom line. Concentrate on the culture of the organization more so than simply, you know, a, a new philosophy, shinier printouts, you know, better team songs, sun visors, and handshakes how you treat each other.
So you, you, we, we can do that together. And there's great, there's so many more resources available to you guys. See, y'all are starting now and are in the journey of planting and doing church together with so many more resources than we had in the church planting movements in my day. So that, that would be some thought. I mean, it, and invite people, read people. You know, some of, the, some of the people I cannot wait to kiss in the new earth are people I never met but I read. Uh, there's something about, you know, getting to know some uh, godly leaders through biographies. You know, who, 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 do you, who do you read that you say, not simply that's going to help me with my sermon, it's going to help me with my heart. Yeah, I want to read about Spurgeon's depression because I need to know that Spurgeon was a depressed man and that really struggled and, and really had to change the way he did life, going to Italy for the winters because his gout, it just it just horribly racked his body with pain and, uh, and life was difficult. And uh, you, you need to know that um, it is going to be already and not yet until Jesus comes back. So take care of yourself and, and, and take care of one another. A few other questions. Anyone else? Have? Don't want to miss anybody's hands here. I know you're smelling lunch, so I'm going to be sensitive to uh, the wonder of Christians who love to eat together. Other questions or comments along any, any part of my story or the journey or just what Bob has said earlier or how these things connect? Yes, yes, Kevin. Yes. That's so good. Ab, thank you. Uh, Greg, if you didn't hear Kevin's question, so looking back, and I'll, this will be the last question, then we will pray for lunch and enjoy um, some table fellowship. So looking back, uh, before 50, what were some markers or opportunities that I missed? Let me tell you one glaring one, and it just shows you how stupid, what a, and, and this is not disparaging language. I want you to know, idols of the heart are formidable. And so I remember one time before I turned 50 when I was with my good friend Dan Allender. Dan and I went to seminary together, and Dan was converted while we were in seminary, which is a great story. Some of you would know that about Dan. He was drugged to seminary uh, by his friend Trimper Longman. Uh, they went to high school together, college together. And they were getting ready to graduate from college. And Dan asked Trimper, what are you going to do next year? And Trimper said, I'm going to seminary. Dan said, what's a seminary? It's where they study God. Well, I think I'll do that. So Dan started filling out his application, came to that section on your testimony. So Dan says to Trimper, what is a testimony? To which Trimper responded, I'll write one for you. So, uh, so little, little backstory there, you know, uh, God works through all kinds of odd things. But here's the point. Here is the point. Uh, you know, Dan and I, who've been walking as friends now 41 years, we both look back in those days and realize the fear, the shame, the arrogance, the pride that just defines so much of our hearts and stories. Okay, years later, uh, probably when I was, I would say, 40 or 38 or so, maybe 38 or so, uh, Darlene and I go visit. Uh, no, I, I hear that Dan... Dan Allender and Larry Crabb are now teaching at Grace Seminary in Winona Lake, Indiana. And they were there for a brief stint. But Dan, now this was like in the 80s. Dan Allender, here's what he did. He did an event where he would bring four people up to study the Allender Crabb counseling model. And I thought, man, that can be kind of cool. Got three good friends. We'll go, you know, drink beer with Dan and learn how he does what he does. And, uh, and so we got up there. And I'll be real quick because I know um, lunch awaits us. But this is, a, this, this is Kevin. It's a perfect, it's a perfect, we will have parallels when you hear my foolishness. So here's what happened. Uh, we would go there, watch Dan counsel someone. Someone in the community would get free counseling through a one-way mirror, right? We would get to watch Dan work with a client doing the way he did, you know, his counseling model. 
And uh, that person would get free counseling, and we would get the benefit of engaging Dan and talking about, you know, becoming better pastoral counselors. Well, that person bailed out on the counseling at the last minute. So Dan said to us, well, one of you four guys be willing to be, you know, my guinea pig this week. Immediately, hey, man, I'd love to. Yeah, I'd do that. So I'm getting ready to walk around the wall, and my friends are saying, Scotty, you're going down, you know. What are you thinking? This is a dangerous man. But let me tell you how thick my issues were. So I indeed was that guy that Dan talked with. Very, he's an amazingly gifted guy and a, and, and a dear, dear, dear friend. But uh, he, he talked to me several hours that week, and at the end of which, in kind of the summary session, I remember him moving up on the end of his chair, getting in my face, and here's what he said. And, and my three friends on the other side are, are hearing all this. He said, Scotty, through this week, there's two things that have become very obvious to me. Um, number one, you've never taken seriously the impact of the death of your mom. You, you've never sat in, you've never grieved the way that death occurred uh, and, and how it marked you deeply. You've never done that. And number two, I also notice this about you. Um, there is a panic in your spirit. There is a constant running to stay in control. You will not let me finish a sentence. You finished my sentences for me. Now, here's where I went with that, that quick. Damn, you are good. Now, how did you get, how did you, you know, so I'm all of a sudden now objectifying him as a clinician talking to me about my story, and I'm so impressed that he was able in the course of 12 hours to kind of get me to the point of basically saying, here's a part of your story you've never honored, and you also have this impulsive OCD oral diarrhea thing going on. And all I want to know is I would love to be able to do what you do, Dan, and I missed the opportunity. And, Kevin, I would say what I've discovered later Given my sexual abuse, given uh, that, uh, given the fact that my, not only my mom was killed in a car wreck, but the only person I got close to all through high school, a girlfriend of three years, she too was killed in a car wreck. And I never took seriously the loss and the betrayal and the wounding. And Dan knew that. Fortunately, years later, that was a grand opportunity I missed. And there were other times it was just the thickness. And I think, again, the, the idle structures of ministry, when God begins to use you, you begin to think, I must be healthy. Why would God convert people through me? Well, there's a good answer there, the power of the gospel. <laughs> I'm not the gospel. I mean, he can speak through Balaam's ass, right? He can sure, you know, fart glory through me. So uh, I'm so sorry. I've never said that phrase before publicly. <laughs> Uh, my wife would absolutely, if, if Darlene, if you ever hear this talk, sweetheart, I am so sorry. I repent. All right, I think it's time to pray with gratitude over lunch. So. Father, thank you um, for the privilege of groaning and growing in grace together. Thank you for the city of Denver. One day that will be covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. All systemic evil will be gone. Men and women from every single race, tribe, tongue, and people group will look back to the city of Denver and what you have chosen to do through weak vessels with a great treasure. Thank you that we have been made stewards of this gospel. And Lord, thank you that we are characters in the story and not just carriers of it. That life is not about doing anything for Jesus, but everything with Jesus. Lord, you are making all things new. You're not making all new things. 
and that means that you're working in our lives. Help us to help one another. Give you praise now, Lord, for bread from heaven and for the bread of this buffet that we share together. Let us truly, Lord, uh, move forward together, uh, bringing each other to Jesus, jumping on the mat first. For the glory of our God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you all.